Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart is going to be discussing the text for the 25th Sunday after Pentecost. If you'd like to see the lectionary that we're using for these discussions, you can find a link for it down there in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on these observations on these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart. I'm here with Brian Motes. Our regular conversation partner, Alistair Roberts, is traveling this week, and so he won't be able to join us. Uh, But we're looking this week at the readings for the 25th Sunday after Pentecost in the year 2018. That's November 11th, the Sunday that's coming up. And the readings for this Sunday are 1 Kings 17, verses 8 through 16, Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 28, and Mark 12, verses 38 through 44. Uh, Let me start with the Old Testament lesson, the passage in 1 Kings 17. This is, uh, 1 Kings 17 begins the account of the the, uh, ministry of Elijah and then of Elisha. And this is right in the center of Kings. Uh, This is a a long stretch. The last several chapters of 1 Kings from chapter 17 to the end focus more on the work of the prophets than they do on the work of the kings. And then the first 10 chapters of 2 Kings also focus largely on the work of Elijah, Elisha, rather. So the, the two prophets are at the center of this book, even though it's called the Book of Kings, and much of the book is concerned with the political events of the divided kingdom. Uh, the center of the book is about the prophets, and I think that's crucial for understanding the theme of Kings. Kings is, uh, was written during the, during the exile, not after the exile. It ends with Jehoiachin still in exile. He's elevated from his prison and brought to the table of the king of Babylon, but he is still in exile. We don't end kings as we do chronicles with the decree of Cyrus. And so uh, the, the question that the writer to kings, uh, writer of kings is trying to answer is not the question uh, of uh, the writer of chronicles. The chronicler is trying to answer the question, what do we do now that we've been released from exile? How do we live? What kind of temple should we build? How should we organize? And what, what kind of king is going to lead us in this project? And Chronicles shows that Cyrus is the one who's going to take that Davidic role and organize the personnel and the materials for the temple and oversee the rebuilding of the temple. But Kings hasn't gotten to that point. Kings is written during the exile to people who are still in exile, and it's designed to explain why Israel and Judah went into exile in the first place. It's not about what happens now that we're, gone, now that we're out of exile, but it's about what, uh, what happened to bring us here. Why did we get expelled from our land? And the central chapters show us why uh, Israel and then Judah both get expelled from the land. And it's because of their reaction to the prophets. The Lord sends prophet after prophet to the kings. The prophets are supposed to hear the word of the prophets. Uh, the kings are supposed to hear the word of the prophets. The kings are supposed to keep the law in front of them, and the prophets are there to remind them of the law. But the kings don't. And we see that at the center of kings as uh, Elijah and then Elisha confront various kings, but uh, those kings resist. Another thing that's happening in these chapters is the formation of, particularly in the, in the time of Elisha, the formation of a, an alternative Israel within Israel. Elijah is a solo prophet, but after his ministry, when Elisha takes over, suddenly there's groups of prophets everywhere. They're sons of the prophets. 
Elisha is always surrounded by other prophets. And because of the ministry, the, the solo ministry of Elijah, that has produced, that's created this community of prophets within the northern kingdom. And that is a community of faithful believers and worshipers of Yahweh within the idolatrous northern kingdom. That is a kind of Israel within Israel. That's the core of what becomes the uh, faithful remnant that survives the exile and returns. Uh, and that's all formed by the work of the prophets. Um, one of the interesting uh, literary uh, uh, items in First, First Kings 17 is the, the beginning of the chapter. Um, by this point in the book of Kings, we have a uh, we've got an established pattern. We have a rhythm for how reigns are supposed to begin and end. We have habits. Uh, we've developed habits and expectations about what uh, what kind of beginning and ending we're going to have to each section of the book. Each section begins, such and such became king in the, in the year of such and such. He's coordinating the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah. It tells how long they reigned. It tells whether they were good or bad. At the close of each reign, we're told... Now the rest of the acts of so-and-so are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah or the kings of Israel? So we have these bookends, this opening and closing of each chapter of the book of Kings. And we've gotten used to that by the time we get to chapter 17. But then chapter 17 begins with Elijah. Uh, he's not been introduced. There's no indication uh, who he is, where he comes from. He runs perpendicular to the uh, linear history of the kings. And uh, he bursts onto the scene out of nowhere apparently. He's called a Tishbite, but everybody, uh, everybody's puzzled by the meaning of that term. It means something about, he's, a, he's among the settlers in Gilead, but nobody knows exactly what that means. But you have this, uh, this prophet that comes out of nowhere, and uh, the Lord, the Lord uh, uh, inspires him by the Spirit and sends him by the Spirit so that he intersects with and confronts Ahab and the descendants of Ahab. The passage for uh, reading for this coming Sunday is, Specifically, verses 8 through 16, uh, this is kind of the second episode in the story of Elisha, Elijah. Rather. Uh, Elijah is burst on the scene, he predicts a drought, and then he leaves the land. He, there's an there's a exile and return kind of motif in chapter 17. Elijah leaves the land, goes out uh, to the wilderness. He's fed by ravens who bring him food morning and evening. There's a sign of... Uh, uh, so, so, uh, the Lord sustains his prophet in the midst of exile. It's referring both back to the Exodus when Israel left a uh, famine-ridden land and went down into Egypt and were fed by the Gentile king, uh, Pharaoh, by the Gentile Pharaoh. Uh, Elijah is going through a similar kind of thing. He goes out of the land and he's fed first of all by ravens and then by a Gentile widow. Um, the widow who provides for him, the widow of Zarephath, is uh, a stands in contrast to uh, Queen Jezebel, who's been introduced in chapter 16 as the queen, the Sidonian queen, uh, who has married Ahab. Uh, the widow of Zarephath lives in the region of Sidon. Um, she's, she's from the same area of the world that uh, Jezebel comes from. But the contrast couldn't be starker. You have Jezebel who's trying to kill Elijah, uh, Jezebel who is an opponent of Elijah and is promoting Id idolatry. Uh, on the one hand, and then you have the widow of Zarephath who not only provides for Elijah, but importantly, provides for Elijah before she makes food for herself. So it's not simply a matter of her giving food to the prophet. It's a matter of her honoring the prophet and treating him 
in a sense, as if he were the carrier as he is, as if he were the carrier of the presence of God. The ravens come morning and evening. That's a kind of a sacrificial motif. They're bringing food to the prophet. It's a picture of the Gentile nations represented by these unclean birds who are coming to bring their treasures and their food to supply Israel. And the same thing is happening with the widow who supplies food for the prophet. And not, again, just doesn't just provide food, but is um, showing respect and honor and homage almost to the Lord's prophet, treating him as if he were a kind of uh, embodiment of the presence of God. So Elijah is, um, is the bearer of the Lord's presence as he goes out among the Gentiles, but he's also removing the word of the Lord from the kingdom of, from the kingdom of Ahab. There's a judgment against Ahab in the fact that the prophet who is speaking the word of the Lord is now gone. There's a famine in the land that's more than a famine of bread. It's also a famine of the word of God. The, uh, the two New Testament passages for this Sunday are um, in different ways uh, connected with the theme of the temple. Uh, Hebrews, is, uh, uh, Hebrews 9 verses 24 through 28 is the reading. And that's a part of a section of Hebrews that's dealing specifically with the tabernacle uh, as the copy of the heavenly sanctuary. Hebrews is throughout contrasting the Old and the New Covenant and showing the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old Covenant, showing that the, the, um, that the Jews um, can have all that they hoped for, all that they had under the Old Covenant, and more if they don't abandon the, the uh, they don't abandon Jesus, if they don't slip back into Judea, uh, Judaism. Hebrews is written late in the first century, late in the uh, apostolic period, uh, during the time that uh, Jesus predicted the time of apostasy, when many are turning away from him, many are returning to the safe haven of Judaism, and Hebrews is written to try to convince them that they should remain with Jesus and they shouldn't shrink back. And the reason they shouldn't shrink back is because they have a better priest, they have a better sacrifice, they have a better sanctuary, they have better access to the sanctuary than they had in the Old Covenant. That's what Hebrews, the end of Hebrews 9 is about, uh, specifically about the sanctuary. Uh, Jesus is the final sacrifice. He offers himself once for all. And he doesn't just offer sacrifice that cleanses the copy, the copies of heavenly things, the, uh, the architectural tabernacle, but he sheds his blood in order to carry that blood, his own blood, as the priest into the heavenly sanctuary and cleanse heavenly things. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the odd twists in this passage is the notion that uh, heaven needs to be cleansed. Verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of things in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The sacrifice of animal cleansed the copies of heavenly things, but it takes the sacrifice of Jesus and his blood to cleanse the heavenly things themselves. Heaven is stained in some fashion under the old covenant. Uh, and we can think about this perhaps in terms of the presence of Satan in heaven whenever uh, we see glimpses into heaven in the old covenant. Satan is there accusing. Uh, we see this in Job. We see this in Zechariah. Uh, and uh, one of the things that Jesus accomplishes is, uh, by his death, resurrection, ascension, is to offer the final sacrifice that silences the accuser and therefore cleanses the heavenly things. Uh, so Jesus' blood is better than the blood of the, of the animals because he uh, cleanses a better sanctuary and gives access to a better sanctuary. Uh, the, the access is uh, more complete, it's more open. Uh, in the Old Covenant, 
Israelites were excluded from the inner, inner sanctuary, excluded from the presence of God. They gathered in the courtyard, but they couldn't go into the holy place, the most holy place. And now Jesus has offered the once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses forever, cleanses us forever, cleanses the sanctuary forever. And so we can enter into the heavenly sanctuary in Him, and we can, uh, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, we can be in the presence of God with unveiled face and uh, be transformed into the image of the glory of God, which we see in the face of Christ. I think it's important to see that uh, Hebrews is, is talking about something that is a present reality for Christians. Uh, we might think that uh, we'll die and we'll go up into a heavenly sanctuary at some point in the future. But uh, the writer of the Hebrews immediately goes from talking about the heavenly sanctuary to saying that we have, uh, that we have access now uh, to, the, uh, to the, this one sanctuary. It's not just something that's going to, uh, it's not just something that we're going to have in the future. Christ did not enter a heavenly sanctuary, a holy place made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And now we can uh, enter in uh, with him. We'll see this even more in an even more pronounced way in uh, next week's reading when we see that uh, the writer of the Hebrews moves from talking about the heavenly sanctuary on our access to the heavenly sanctuary to talking about our own assembling together uh, as the people of God. So those things are connected for the writer of the Hebrews. It's not just a future access, but an access that we have in the present. Now, the Mark 12 passage is the end of as the, the final section of Mark 12, just before Jesus launches into the Olivet Discourse. We'll look at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse next week. This is uh, Mark's equivalent to the denunciation of the scribes and Pharisees that we see uh, in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, we have Jesus give a lengthy, uh, he, he gives a lengthy condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees and then moves into the uh, Olivet Discourse where he's describing the coming doom that's over the temple. Mark has a much uh, briefer uh, description of Jesus' denunciation, but it's still the same setting. In all the synoptics, we have this uh, lengthy section where Jesus, from the time Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday until the time uh, he gives the Olivet Discourse, and he's in the temple day after day. He's teaching and healing in the temple. He's turned the temple into a house of healing and a house of prayer and a house of teaching. But it's also a, a constant conflict, a contest between Jesus and the, uh, and the Pharisees and scribes who are trying to trap him. Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians, all the different groups of Jews come and try to trap him. Jesus keeps reversing their traps, catching them in their own traps. He eludes them and publicly shames them. So this is, this is part of the, um, thinking about the psychological Dynamics, the psychosocial dynamics of this last week of Jesus' life. He's entered into Jerusalem and he's denounced the temple. He said uh, that uh, it's become a den of thieves. That gets everybody riled up. And then he spends the next week in debate. And every time he gets into debate, he publicly shames the scribes and Pharisees. That's just adding insult to injury. They now have a whole host of reasons to hate him. He came and denounced their temple. He said that the Lord is leaving it desolate. He now has bested them in debate. He's shamed them before the crowds, and so they want to get rid of him because they realize that the crowds are listening to him. So um, this is the climax of that, and then Jesus goes into the uh, Olivet Discourse. Uh, it's the climax of that conflict in the temple. And uh, the one thing that, that Mark records about Jesus' denunciation has to do with their abuse of widows, um, their pride, their hubris, they're constantly seeking honor from men, 
They want the chief seats. They want to wear long robes so that people think they're really holy. They broaden their phylacteries, as Matthew says. They, they make really big phylacteries to wear on their foreheads to show everybody how pious they are. But at the same time, they're doing these things, making this external show of piety. They're devouring widows' houses and uh, abusing the poor, abusing the, the vulnerable. Uh, so it's that hypocrisy that Jesus is denouncing. And we see an example of that, in a sense, immediately following. Jesus has just said, uh, denounce the scribes who walk in long robes, who devour widows' houses. And then as he's sitting watching the treasury, he sees a widow come and put her last two copper coins into the, into the treasury. Now, this is often seen as an, a, a sign of the widow's piety, which I think is right. The widow is uh, pious and faithful, and she gives her very last bit of money to the, to the temple. But in context, the point is the opposite, really. It's, it's not, the accent is not on the widow's piety. It's on the way the scribes are abusing her piety to defraud her of her last few pennies, her last, her last bit of money. Uh, behind the, her willingness to offer her last money is the abuse of the of scribes and Pharisees. Um, Jesus does commend her for putting in more than all the others, but in context, he's, uh, that commendation of the widow is simultaneously a condemnation of the scribes and Pharisees. So that's the, in a sense, that's the last straw. When the temple becomes a place that's abusing widows and orphans, then the temple is, uh, no longer has a right to stand. That's what uh, Jeremiah said back in Jeremiah 7. The reason why the temple had become a den of thieves is because uh, the people who were running the temple, the people who were worshiping the temple were leaving the temple and going out and abusing the poor, doing injustice, filling the land with injustice. And uh, that kind of hypocrisy uh, is going to bring the temple down so that there's not one stone left on another. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.